Welcome to our virtual Bible study. We are continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, today we'll pick up with uh, Jesus' letter to the church of Philadelphia, which is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. So let me read the passage and then we'll look at seven main ideas from this particular letter. Beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my name, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about, uh, you have kept my word about patient endurance I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out, out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from, from God out of heaven and my, my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is the second of, of this is, well, there are two letters that are written to the individual churches that bear no critique or no rebuke. And this is one of them. The other one is the Church of Smyrna. Now there are a couple things that we wanna start with. The first one is to look at Jesus' self-description to the Church of Philadelphia. Philadelphia meaning brotherly love, as we know from our own Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But uh, that's, that's the Greek equivalent of brotherly love. So there are two things, uh, well, the description that Jesus gives of, the, of himself falls along two lines. The first one is two parts. He calls himself the Holy One and the True One, which corresponds to chapter 1, verse 5, where Jesus is called the Faithful Witness. And also it corresponds to chapter 6, verse 10, where we read these words. They cried out with a loud voice, O Lord, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And as Greg Beale has pointed out in his commentary, uh, this is no doubt intended to emphasize that, uh, that Jesus is the true and the prophesied Messiah as well as his divine nature. So he is both holy and true. He is holy in his character and in his person because he is God, 
but he is also the true and faithful witness, and he is the one who has been promised and prophesied by God. We'll flesh that part of it out in a little more detail uh, shortly. But in verse 7, he also says that he has the key of David who opens, or the key of David, which opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Now this definitely goes to his messianic function. And actually what John is doing here is he's making a reference to the messianic prophecy of Isaiah. By messianic prophecies, what we mean are portions of the Old Testament when some aspect of the coming Messiah is prophesied, either in his work, in his first advent, or in his second advent, or his nature as the God-man. So the promised Messiah, the deliverer, the savior, is prophesied in a number of places in the Old Testament. In particular, John is citing from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And even though he has another individual in mind, through the office and work of that individual, Eliakim, he is referencing the coming of the Messiah. So in Isaiah 22, verse 22, it reads this way. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So what John is doing, or what Jesus is doing, in the words of John, is demonstrating that he is the Holy One, referencing his holy divine character, but he is also the promised prophet, prophesied Messiah. As such, he has the key, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, usually in the Old Testament references to the coming Messiah, much, uh, much emphasis is laid on his link to David, referencing his right to rule as the people of God in reference to God's promise to David that he will never lack anyone, any of his offspring, to sit on the throne. Christ is the ultimate promise, uh, fulfillment of the promise to David, which is the way uh, the Apostle Paul opens the book of Rome, Ro uh, Romans, saying that he is both the offspring of David and or emphasizing the fact that he is, he, his link is to David. So this, the second thing to look at, not only do we see the reference to his, um, to his messiahship and we see the reference to his holy character, we see also uh, in this self-disclosure, in this self-description, the reason for it, where he links himself to the pro promise of Isaiah in 22, and the reason it's so drenched in Hebrew scripture, is probably aimed at what appears to be the biggest external threat to the Church of Philadelphia, which we see in verse 9. And that threat seems to be from those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not. Now we've already shown the reference or the correlation uh, or we've already opened up what is meant by the synagogue of Satan uh, because this matches the same description 
of those that were causing problems for the church in Smyrna. So that same reference is used in chapter 2, verse 9, referencing the synagogue of Satan. And as we pointed out in looking at that particular portion of, of, um, of the letter to the church of Smyrna, the synagogue of Satan refers to those Jews who, had, who were natural descendants of Abraham and who had access to the Old Testament scriptures and really claimed to believe the Old Testament scriptures. And they did, in as much as they believed that the scriptures came from God. And so it was the authoritative word of God. However, and, and it should also be noted that in the Old Testament scripture, they knew that God had promised a Messiah. The problem with the non-Christian Jews is that they did not believe that Jesus was that Messiah. So the Judaizers that are referenced in the book of Galatians, and here they are referred to as the synagogue of Satan, it's because they have the scriptures, they, are, they have messianic hope, they believe that the scriptures are the word of God, but they don't believe that Jesus is that promised Messiah. And because they do not believe that he is the Messiah, they reject anyone that claims that he is or seeks to interpret the scriptures through the person and work of Christ. At their worst, in uh, the book of Galatians, the Judaizers, some who claimed faith in Christ and maybe that he was the Messiah, at worst with those with that form of Judaizers, they at least acknowledged that Jesus was the Savior, but they still believed that in order to be saved, one needed to have faith in Christ and then also fulfill all of the requirements of the Mosaic law, which included physical circumcision. So they are not called the synagogue of Satan, the ones that Paul is, is refuting in the book of Galatians. But the more radical ones, those who actually deny that Jesus was the Messiah, are those who held to the authority of God's word, but rejected the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And they also wanted any converts, or what they would call um, any, yeah, any, any proselytes for them to be physically circumcised. If you, in other words, if you were not a natural descendant of Abraham and you wanted to join the synagogue, you could be a worshiper, but in order to really join the community, you physically needed to be circumcised. In any event, they are rejecting the claim of those who are using the Old Testament scriptures to make a case for the person of Christ and make a case for the gospel, they are, um, they are rejecting them as being inauthentic. So the, the argument that Jesus is taking up here, or I should say the defense that Jesus is taking up here on behalf of the church of Philadelphia in the same way that he does with uh, the church of Smyrna is to affirm that faith in him does make them the true descendants of Abraham in the same way that Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 4 who says that everyone who has the faith of Abraham is an offspring of Abraham. Also in the book of Romans, Paul says that everyone who is all of Israel is not of Israel. In other words, you could be a natural descendant 
But if you did not have faith in the true Israel of God, who is Christ, then you are not a genuine, uh, of, you're not truly of Israel. And that's really the case that Jesus is making against those that he designates as being the uh, synagogue of Satan. So they rejected uh, these individuals, these Jewish um, believers in the Old Testament scripture, rejected the Christian claim that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the promised and prophesied Messiah. So Jesus describes himself in such a way that affirms both that he is the, the, the Messiah uh, and that he is divine. So he, in, in his self-description, that's what he does. He affirms both his deity and his messiahship. His deity, because he's holy and true. His messiahship, because he is the one that has been given the key of the house of David. And what he opens, no man can shut. And what he shuts, no man can open. Now, we don't know exactly how this threat played out. Uh, we do know that, um, and I think we pointed this out when we were looking at the, the, the church of Smyrna. We do know that non-believing Jews were agitators against the apostles. Uh, it's the non-believing Jews that brought Paul to, um, in, in Jerusalem that brought him before the authorities. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 16 with Paul and Silas. It's the non-believing Jews who go to the, the authorities and basically claim that those who believe in Christ are troublemakers. It was the same thing in the course of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was the Jewish religious leaders who rejected the claims of Jesus as being the Messiah who went to the uh, political authorities, uh, the Roman authorities, because they felt that he was, again, causing a problem. And one thing that should also be held in mind, especially in the first century, that there was religious toleration. We know there were periods of purging uh, of the Jews, uh, and there was also a religious persecution against Christianity. But the Jewish religion was a tolerated religion for the most part throughout the Roman Empire. And because the Christians used the, the Jewish biblical text and used and spoke of the same God, for those who were the outsiders who did not know the difference between the Jews and the Christians, they looked at them pretty much as being the same. So at, at various points, the, the Jews who actually rejected the Christian message, not wanting to be confused with uh, the Christians, which included Jewish converts as well as Gentiles, they did not want to be included with them, and they were at various points agitators, causing the authorities uh, or causing the authorities to lean harshly on those who embraced uh, the Christian religion. So we don't know exactly how this kind of persecution played out or how this threat played out, but it seems to be that the non-believing Jews pose a particular problem uh, for some within uh, Asia Minor, maybe towards the political authorities, maybe culturally, maybe socially, but any event, in any event, 
Jesus assures this church that uh, of their security, no matter what uh, these non-believing non Jews may say, his affirmation of their authority is that he will open a door for them. And the door that he opens again is one that cannot be shut. And the doors that he shuts cannot be opened by anyone. Which brings us to a fourth consideration. Like the church of Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia receives no rebuke. But instead, Jesus commends this church in a threefold interconnected way. So he doesn't rebuke them, even with the case of the church at, um, the church at Ephesus. He speaks of their faithfulness in one regard, but then he does rebuke them for their lax, uh, their being lax in other areas. But only the church of Smyrna and Philadelphia don't receive any rebukes. But Jesus uh, affirms them. And, and I said in a threefold connected, interconnected way. Here's the way, here's how he affirms them or he commends them. First off, Jesus says, you have a little power. Now, more than likely, and both Greg Deal and I believe Dennis Johnson are in agreement on this point, that by a little power, what they are referring, what's being referred to are the outward signs of their effectiveness. In other words, their witness, the effectiveness of their witness. So again, similar to the church at Smyrna, where it says, I know the slander against you, and then he speaks of their being impoverished. This is a church that seems at least outwardly, uh, because the church of Smyrna, they were small in, um, small in number, they were impoverished, they were being slandered. So the church at, at Philadelphia outwardly did not have the trappings of, say, the church of Sardis. Remember, the church of Sardis had a great reputation. So this particular congregation, the church at Philadelphia, seems to have little power. Maybe they, maybe they didn't have the, the uh, community buzz. Maybe they did not have the political connections. They didn't have the outward trappings of a church that was solid and sound. Uh, a number of years ago, it, when I was still in Southern California, there was an ordinance that was, they were attempting to pass in the city of Compton to not allow any storefront churches. And at the time, the, the mayor was a friend of mine and I actually uh, went to him and I challenged him on that. Our church wasn't a storefront church, but I challenged him on that because uh, what he was doing was determining that because of the size of the church or the size of the building, number one, they were not that strong. And two, he says they were aesthetically, they were not aesthetically pleasing to the community. And it's interesting that uh, when we measure things by temporal or external measures, what we would consider a success. So my challenge to him, because I knew where he, even though he at that point had rejected his own Christianity um, or his, the Christianity he grew up with, my challenge to him was how he could determine the health of a church 
by the outside appearance of its building. And so I said, so by your logic, we could go to the largest, and I won't mention any particular names, but we could go to a large facility and assume, and a beautiful edifice, and assume that because it's beautiful, it's sound? Is that what we're saying? And he said, no, no, it's just that, um, you know, it's just that it's, it's an eyesore. And I said, so again, using your logic, if what you think is an eyesore is a means of the nurturing of the souls of people, does it, is it, is it really, you know, is it as bad as you say it is? And the point being, again, we, we can attempt to measure whether or not, uh, or we measure the standards of a church by oftentimes the wrong things. And again, it goes back to the discussion with the church of Sardis. They had a reputation that they were alive, that they had it going on, but Jesus said they're dead. So in this instance, he says that the church of Philadelphia, it's not that they don't have any effectiveness, but externally and perhaps in comparison to other congregations or other churches, there is little external evidence of the soundness of this church. So Jesus, on the first, in the, at the first thing he says about them is, I know you have but a little power. But the second thing that he says, which is connected, because he says you have some powers, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not great. Your sizes, your numbers are not big. But he says, in spite of this lack of outward signs of effectiveness, he says they have been faithful to the word of God. So even though you have but a little power, you have remained faithful to the word of God. There was um, a, a documentary or the news magazine, 2020, I think it was, a number of years ago, they did uh, an expose on the rise of uh, mega churches and more particularly word faith churches and how people in the religious or the church community were moving away from orthodoxy for external things that were more appealing. So they had a contrast. They showed the growth of larger churches in certain parts of the country, but they also they, they started with uh, the small, sort of when I say small, maybe about a hundred members of this Reformed church in uh, upstate Michigan, in um, yeah somewhere in, in the Michigan area. I think it was close to Grand Rapids. In any event, they showed the pastor opening up the Word of God, and it was great to see because you had references to reform standards, confessions, etc. They showed the people in worship and the people were small in comparison to the large mega churches around them, but they were solid and sound just from the things that you could hear. Well, they followed them over the course of a number of months and what, what the reason they highlighted this particular church was because there was a mega church that was really ah theological. And by ah theological, what I mean is they were indifferent to doctrine. The emphasis, and they made it clear that the emphasis, they wanted to build a church according to what people wanted, not necessarily according to what people would call orthodox theology. Well, this church uh, was not far from them. 
And so they were showing kind of side by side how this small reformed church was remaining faithful and in spite of the threats and losing members to this, this other church. Well, as they followed them over a course of a number of months towards the end of the, the broadcast, uh, they showed they would go back and forth to the worship services in the small reformed church. And almost each time they would show them the congregation was smaller. And so finally, the, the final time they went, it was the pastor, few elders, and just a few families. And the pastor was calling a, uh, a, a, an elder meeting to discuss with the elders whether or not they should attend a conference that was being sponsored by this larger mega church to perhaps learn some strategies that they could use to regrow the church. What God says about the Church of Philadelphia is that even though your numbers are small or your witness doesn't seem to, to have the same impact as a larger congregation, perhaps with more resources, you have remained faithful. You have not deviated from proclaiming the word of God. And then connected to that, not only does he say you have not deviated, you have remained faithful, I should say, to the word of God. Thirdly, he says, you have not denied my name. So you have but little power, little external evidence of your effectiveness, but yet you have remained faithful. Now, let me point out here, sometimes churches can be stubborn about the wrong things. Some programs we just continue to do simply because we have done them. But what Jesus is talking about is not formulas, not programs, not, not things that they have done that they used to do and they just stopped, they just continue to do them. But he's talking about being steadfast in something in particular, and that is the proclamation of the word of God. There are things that we start that, are, that serve us well for a season, but sometimes that season runs out. The one thing that never runs out of season is the ministry of the word of God. There may be secondary programs, secondary methods that we have held on to for years. And I do think that sometimes churches are out of step with the time simply because we want to do what we've always done. And at the same time, they consider that to be faithful to the word of God. So the programs that you used to do or the way that you used to do them, that doesn't necessarily that is not necessarily equivalent to being steadfast in the word of God. What Jesus is commending this church for is that in spite of the lack of numbers or the external things that people would say make you successful, they have not backed up from proclaiming God's word and claiming the name of Jesus. And generally what Jesus means when he says denying my name, it's not just denying uh, denying him, but in essence, he, they are affirming that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, 
He is the one who has been promised and prophesied by God. In other words, he is the Messiah. The rallying cry of the first century church is that Jesus is Lord. So they have acknowledged him, not as a good teacher, not as a good role model, not as a good business leader. Jesus is the only begotten son of God, and they have not backed away from that. And they have not backed away from their claim on the Holy Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, it's easy for us to say, well, we're just like the, the church at Philadelphia. We may not have this, but we're faithful. Let's make sure that what we are faithful to is not our name, but we are faithful to the name of Christ. Some churches have their own branding issues, and we're more faithful to our brand or our name than we are to the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is what saves us. And the reason it saves is because in the person of Christ is all of the grace of God for, that is necessary for the salvation of human souls. Jesus says on the outside, it doesn't look like you have much power or impact, but you've remained faithful to my word and you have not denied my name. That brings us to the fifth thing. Jesus says he will reward their faithfulness to the ministry of the word in spite of the lack of external success in two ways. First off, in verse 9, he basically says that he will give them some external results from their ministry from the very group that has denied the authenticity of their claims towards the Bible. Look in verse 9. Jesus says to uh, the, the, the church, he says, And behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make some of them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The one that comes to mind, I know it's a slightly different, but it's really cut from the same cloth. The one that comes to mind is the Apostle Paul. As Saul of Tarsus, he propagated the persecution of the church. He held the cloaks uh, of, of those who did stonings, uh, the stoning of Stephen. And he breathed threats against the church. That's what he says even in his own testimony, that he, he was a Jew of the first order. And what God does, what Christ does in converting him, is he brings him into the care and custody of the very ones that he was railing against. What Christ is saying to the church is as you continue to hold fast to the word of God, I will take some of those from the household, from the synagogue of Satan, and I will bring them into your very presence, and they will know that, my, that I genuinely love you, and they will bow at your feet. Not praising them because they are, they are so faithful or anything, but in other words, what God will do ultimately is bring some from the synagogue of Satan into the very care and nurturing of the church that they had rebuked church that perhaps they had they had conspired against one of the things that I think about with the conversion of Paul is that the Lord sent him to Ananias 
and he sent him and put him in the care of those who were ministers of the word of God while he was blind. And I've often said, you know, I just kind of thinking of it in human terms that, you know, maybe they could take advantage of him a little bit uh, before they, they discipled him in the word. But the Lord made Paul or Saul of Tarsus blind so that he could work through those that, he, that were of the true church allowed them to be sources of grace and nurturing to Paul. They had to be his eyes. They had to be compassionate towards him because he was vulnerable. And it was during this period of his being blinded and, and being weakened that he was discipled. And what the Lord is telling the church of Philadelphia, keep preaching, keep, keep declaring my name, keep declaring the word of God, and don't worry about it. I will bring some from that flock into your fold. The second thing that he, he says that he will reward them with is in verse 10, where he says he will keep from them a particular trial that will affect all of those in the world. And when he talks about those who dwell on the earth, that's a particular phrase that's used throughout the book of Revelation. And I would say that it's, it's parallel to John's use of the word more broadly, in, uh, especially in his epistles, the word or the world. In other words, those who are in their natural state outside of fellowship with Christ. Uh, those, the threefold enemy that John speaks of in his first epistle, uh, epistle is the word, the flesh, and the, or the world, the flesh, and the devil. By world, what he means are the individuals and institutions that reflect the fallen human nature. In other words, those things that are not renewed by grace in Christ. Uh, by the flesh, he means your individual fallen nature. And by the devil, of course, he means the adversary who is still at work in the world, diverting attention away from the person and work of Christ. So the challenge for the church is always that those, those three, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In this case, what, what Christ is saying is that there is a trial that will affect all of those who are of the world. And perhaps it may include some who are within the, the household of faith. So he, he promises specially, especially to the Church of Philadelphia, that when this trial comes, it will not affect you. So what Christ is promising to this church for their faithfulness is that he will give them fruit from the very source of their irritation, and he will keep them from a particular trial that will have de uh, devastating effects on the rest of the world. That brings us to the sixth thing, which is in verse 11. In verse 11, uh, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, this is really sort of a, a preamble to the closure of the letter. Usually at the end of the letter, Jesus promises them things concerning our, the, the consummation of his kingdom. But what he does here is he gives an important word of encouragement 
before he moves on to the broader closing. And the essence of the word of encouragement is hold fast so that no one seizes your crown. If we could put it in other terms, it's a way of saying, as you have been faithful in the proclamation of the word, as you have been faithful in, in declaring uh, or in, in keeping yourself from the things or the influences of, of the Judaizers, and as you have faithfully held on to my name, and even though you don't have any outward effects, keep doing it. And I think what he's, he's addressing is a particular challenge for churches that might be doctrinally sound, but don't always see external fruit. As we mentioned with the illustration with the Reformed Church in Michigan, the temptation is to try to do something that works. And so Jesus is just kind of giving an aside and he's saying, as you have been faithful, continue to be faithful and don't let anyone make you think you are less than what you are. Obviously, no one can take the crown. We share the crown of life. No one can take that. I think what Jesus is, his, his words of comfort to them is don't let your lack of external effectiveness cause you to second guess the legitimacy of who you are. And brothers and sisters, that's true not only for churches. That's true for us individually as believers as well. Sometimes when we don't see our lives matching up to quote unquote the victorious life of that person who seems to dot all the right I's or, or dot all the I's, cross all the T's, and we try to do the same thing and we don't see the same results. It, it's, it's at that point that we wonder if we've missed something. I think of John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry as recorded in the Gospel of John. When John the Baptist sees his cousin coming, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes, who takes away the sins of the world. And he boldly proclaimed Christ as the scriptures foretold that he would. And then at a certain point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he comes through and John has been thrown in prison. And Jesus doesn't so much as go visit him. At that point, John gathers the same disciples that he had affirmed Jesus as being the Lamb of God. And he sends this message back to Jesus. He says, would you go to him and you ask him, are you the Christ or should we look for another? And what John was basically saying, he, he's kind of speaking out of his frustration because he knew the promises concerning the Messiah that he sets the captives free. And since John was captive and he acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, he thought he would be set free. And Jesus, when he gets the word of him, he tells the disciples of John, citing from the same passage from Isaiah, 
you go and tell John that the sight that the blind are receiving their sight. You tell him that the captives are being set free and you tell him that the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now what he does is he commends John. He says of all of the prophets born of a woman, there's none that's greater than John. But yet in his frustration, John was allowing his circumstances to hinder him from acknowledging with the same degree of boldness that Jesus is the one. He is the Lamb of God. He allowed his circumstances to bring doubt on that otherwise clear conviction from Scripture. What Jesus is telling the church at Philadelphia, don't go by how many members you did or did not take in. Don't let anyone make you a second-class church just because you don't have the external signs of success. And likewise, brothers and sisters, again, don't let anyone make you feel like you are a second-class Christian because you don't have all of these outward signs of victory and joy in your life. Here's what makes the church the church. It is the pillar and the ground of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the embassy from which the ambassadors of Christ are sent into all of the world, declaring that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God who lives for our righteousness, died for our sins, was raised for our justification and is seated right now for our intercession. Don't let anything, no matter what people may say about you, don't be ashamed of that message. And don't let anyone delegitimize you because of those external things. Now, if you're a believer, same thing. Do you believe that truth? Then don't let anyone delegitimize your faith because of sickness, because of failures in your marriage, in your, your home? Do you believe these things? And what Jesus does is he says, hold on to them. Hold on to those things and don't let anyone, he says, seize your crown. We would say, don't let anyone rain on your parade. Don't let anyone delegitimize you because they're measuring your effectiveness either as a, an individual Christian or a corporate church body by external things. Well, having given them this very important word of comfort, he now gives them the final word, sort of the benediction to the church. And in his final words of exhortation, what Jesus does, which is in verse 12, what he does, and I think it's intentional, is that he further affirms the authenticity of this congregation, mixed probably as it was. By mixed, I mean that it consisted more than likely of both Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus uses the most Jewish language to affirm this church. In verse 12, he says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
never shall he go out of it. And I will write on, uh, on him the name of my God and, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Jesus affirms them by saying that by holding on to the word of God, by holding on to the name of Christ, in spite of your external circumstances, what you are is a part of the very temple of God. The Apostle Paul speaks in the same way when he's writing to a largely Gentile congregation, when he writes his letter to the Ephesian church, that you are being built up into the holy habitation of Most High God. And then, of course, he ends the letter by simply saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What Jesus is saying to this church who doesn't seem to have any outward signs of success is that you're mine. And by being mine, you are a part of the kingdom of God. Don't let the people who look like they are more successful or who think they know more, don't let them distract you or seize your crown. Because what I've given you, no man can take Therefore, it is he who sets before the church an open door that none can shut, no matter how much slander they put out there, you can't shut the door. Now that, by the way, is akin to what Jesus says in Matthew 16 when he refers to the confession of Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not only is he, does he open a door that none can shut, but the door that he shuts, none can open. In other words, we are secure in him as we cling to who he is, as he has been revealed in holy scriptures and affirmed by his resurrection. Church at Philadelphia, as we mentioned, is one of two churches that has nothing, no rebukes against them. The thing they both have in common is that neither one of these churches are churches that from the outward appearance of things that we would call successful, but Jesus claims them as his own. Let's make sure that we measure ourselves by the right standard when we measure ourselves in the faith and when we measure a church, those who are faithful to the word of God. Well, that's all we have for today. Uh, before we close, again, we want to remind you that in our time of self-isolation. We want to be mindful of our, our, those who, are, who live alone and those who are isolated from uh, immediate family members. Please be mindful of those who are on our prayer lists. Uh, be mindful of seniors and those who are infirm, those who are hospitalized. Uh, use this as an opportunity to reach out one to another. Uh, Sister Jones and I are grateful for those who have texted us, who have called us, checking on us, making sure we're okay. And we do want to uh, lift one another. Uh, be, be, be quick to share something uh, that build your brothers and sisters up in the faith as we, um, as we are apart. Uh, this should remind us that it's not natural for us not to be together. So even though we're making use of this as a means of con connecting and communicating, 
We pray that on our worst Lord's Day, when we don't feel like getting up and coming out and singing, we pray that as when this is over, we will be reminded of just how precious, precious it is when God's people are allowed to come together in fellowship and in worship. We also want to say thank you for your continued financial support of the church. And we pray that you would continue to do so. You, uh, the church has, been, has done very well. We had a couple of weeks early on where things weren't what they needed to be. But the last couple of weeks, uh, the giving has been very solid. And we pray that you would continue to remember that the needs of the church go on. Uh, we keep our staff in place and because we don't want to let things go even though we're not occupying our sanctuary at this time. Also, we want to say thank you again for our staff. We are here on, our, on a regular basis, Monday, usually Monday through Friday, someone is going, going to be here. If you have any questions, if you have any concerns, if you would like to just sit down and talk, whether it's on the phone or you just want to get some kind of clarity on the season that we're going through, I'm still available. So you can call me, you can make an appointment, and we can sit down face to face, or we can talk over the phone. But in any event, we do pray that you would continue to make, um, make our time together uh, through this means, uh, make it available to others within the fellowship. And we pray that this has been an encouragement to you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thanking you for the gift of life and especially for the newness of life that we have in him. We come to you, Father, praying that the word that has been opened, we trust that you, by your spirit, would minister this word to your people. Let us hear as we ought to hear and give us the ability to integrate this truth that has been opened up to us, integrated into all of our thinking and all of our doing. We lift all of the names on our prayer list before you. We pray for those who are sick and those who are shut in we pray for those who have been directly impacted and affected by the virus. We don't know when we will be able to gather again in one place as one body, but we know that we are one body. Continue to strengthen us, not just this local congregation, but the church universal, the other, other pastors and churches that we know of, as well as those that we don't know of. Father, we come before you not because we are good or perfect. We come before you acknowledging that we have sinned against you. We pray that in as you bring us under conviction for our sins, you would give us a continual reminder that our sins are atoned for in the, in the blood of our Savior. Therefore, we pray that by your spirit and through your word, you would strengthen us to see our sins as they truly are which is rebellion against our sovereign creator. We pray, Father, that you would give us a heart to consciously turn from anything that is contrary to your word or will and consciously cling to your grace as it is in Christ. Let our position in him be the lens through which we view all of our actions on this earth. Thank you for your grace in him. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.